0: This is One Heat Minute.
1: Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. You look like gang bangers, working the local 7-Eleven here.
0: Robbery, homicides, take care. Give me
1: all you got! Listen,
0: give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's LA Crime Opus Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to One Heat Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard. And joining me for the 145th minute of Michael Mann's 1995 LA Crime Opus Heat is, you know, another person who was talking to Anthony Maris and became a part of this show. Anthony Maris, extremely talented filmmaker in Australia, just made Hotel Mumbai, um, a a deeply affecting uh, portrait of uh, terrorism, was just by pure coincidence having dinner with a fellow Australian and mentioned, oh, you know, there's this show called One Heat Minute. And uh, for my guests today, they were like, what? What? What is this thing? How can this thing exist and I have not heard about it? And what is really thrilling is that that's not just happening for folks who are just epic film fans or writers or critics that's happening for filmmakers and uh, that's a real thrill for me. So today, i have the director and writer of Terminus and Dark Horse and recently in an Oz in like Flynn um, and uh, and he's on the line with me from LA, uh, an Aussie in LA. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Mark Fermi to One Hey Minute. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Um,
1: yeah, yet another Aussie in LA. where a, <laughs> a dime a dozen. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh man, it, you know you've you've got to you got to you got to go where the work is. So you got to do what you got to do, man. That's that's it. Yeah.
1: The funny thing is, heat has like taken on a different life since moving here because it's it was always this intangible thing you couldn't touch, and then you get here and you're like, hang on a second, that is that corner or that is that diner. Where you know they tried to stuff Wayne Grove into the, into the back <laughs> front of the car, and it's it it's almost like in a sense demystifying, but it also takes on a whole new life in that you can touch it, like it. And I think because man um, spent a lot of time retaining authenticity in the geography, yes, it, it's different. It's different to some movies. Like I remember watching The Matrix because um, they shot that in Sydney. And, and knowing knowing that tunnel near Central Station, yes. Neo is you know getting kicked out of the car, and then they drive around the corner and they're somewhere completely different, and it just takes you out of the movie knowing that city so well. But I think for the most part, man's like preserved the geography of this city and heat so beautifully that. Um, being here makes you feel more connected to the film as I'm sure you you felt when you've traveled here
0: yeah it's it's and, it's weirder now having it under such levels of scrutiny and like people still point out amazing things to me that I couldn't possibly know like for example the you know the heist, the original heist is sort of near downtown and then yeah. the the view from the car park with Nate and Neil, just right at the beginning of the film, Garth Franklin, who's a great friend of the show is on there. He's like, Oh, that's close to downtown. So like Neil's still hanging around. So to, so to speak around the scene of the crime, like he's got enough confidence to know that he can just casually drive to this car park. And that's the best place to do business. And I was just like, I'd never thought about sort of does like give you a little, pangs of like oh that's great and similarly when vincent gets down to see albert torino for the first time when he's pissed off my friend's like oh that's like an hour south like they're driving he's driving yeah. an hour to this yeah. you know this informant and what's all the more frustrating is he's driven this hour and he gets nothing and you know he then gets has to go back into town <laughs> back to koreatown at night you know at 3 a.m that morning to 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 party um so yeah, it's, yeah exactly. it's it's good
1: even the even the valley where i live because i live in the in Sherman Oaks which is you know it's kind of over the hill and a forgotten it's the armpit of Los Angeles in <laughs> a way. but it's like you, when you when you figure out that Van Zant lives in Encino it kind of makes sense because it's it's where you would imagine all the dodgy businessmen would live <laughs> you know it's like they wouldn't be in the center of Malibu in the you know in a beachfront property although I'm sure there are some there but it, it you know it, Encino is its only own little rich community, but it's kind of hidden. It would be like, I don't know, like the back end of all clues, you know, or actually, no, it would probably be Castle Hill. Yes. It would probably be like the rich people that live in Castle Hill.
0: Um, where they, so it's, it's interesting. Where, they don't, the, where, where they don't realize that they're so rich, you know, like yeah, a, if you, unless you live in Sydney, you don't realize that, oh, no, that's where there's a real stack of wealthy people. They're just sort of hidden over there. Yeah. Just, you know, yeah. within within throwing distance of the city, but far enough away. That's right, so, yeah. Well, look, yeah. Uh, I've brought you in uh, to talk... You know, we're, we are definitely on the downhill slope of this film, and I brought you in after a deeply traumatic moment where Lauren, uh, uh, Diane Venora's daughter, Justine's daughter, has just attempted suicide. And just as we approach this... You would have heard the previous episode with Jedediah Ayres. we're talking um, the actual scene, a little bit of the fallout of the scene, Vincent protecting her, and then now we're going to roll in with Mark just as Vincent arrives into the emergency room and really Justine actually gets to see what he adds, what value he adds, because so far it's all been these intangible things. So um, Mark and I are going to watch it together right now and you guys are going to have a listen along and then we're going to come back and unpack it for you.
1: It's okay baby. All right, let's get a doctor. Let's go, a doctor here. Oh, here's your mom. Okay, your mom she is calm here. down. Yeah. Is well,
0: she I'm on calm. any drugs? No. All right, I want you to get a trauma surgeon down here and a vascular surgeon. I think she cut both arteries. Also, I can hardly feel her pulse. Her pressure's way down. So is her respiration.
1: She's going to have to intubate her. She's ready. <laughs> When's the last time anybody saw her? I don't know. Where did you find her? Back Call respiratory stat. Give a large bore normal saline, wide open. Let's keep pressure on those bleeders. I need two units O negative now. Let's type in Crosser for six.
0: Looks like she gets the I had a second line.
1: Where is respiratory? We need some more help. Can you have respiratory come down now? Let's have X-ray ready for post-intubation chest X-ray. Hi. Your daughter's out of surgery and she's in the recovery room.
0: There it is. It's a heart-wrenching scene. It is, but there's just one moment that I take a lot of pleasure in watching it again and again is when the lady's like, Okay, calm down. (laughs) Like for anyone who knows Vincent Hanna in this movie, he's like, I am calm. (laughs) Like this is me calm. (laughs) Okay. There are different levels of calm that people can function at, but right now this is me really calm. Like I'm about to tell you exactly what needs to happen with this young girl to protect her. And so that's that. But no, it's nonetheless, you know. Again, well, that, there's, that's, there's that's probably the great thing about his,
1: his character is that he, he is so knowledgeable. I mean, and, and why we like – I think I've heard somebody mention in your podcast before that why we like certain characters is when they're really good at their jobs and man is the king of portraying professionals who are extremely good at their jobs, so good that, you know, he probably knows the nurse's jobs better <laughs> than they do. Yes. Uh, And I I think that's an extension of being a great filmmaker. I mean, you you hear Fincher talk about it in that, you know, Fincher knows the grip, the grip um, profession better than most grips. You know, (laughs) he, he, he knows what it takes to move a dolly. He knows... You can't pull the wool over his eyes, and I think Man is is a similar
0: Soderbergh type. Too. Of- you look at Soderbergh. Yeah. I mean, he's his own and camera. Up, op- he's like you know. You, you hear yeah. about those big ones. There's some of those guys that their the method to their madness is actually getting hands on and physically doing things in being in the moment in the pocket like literally sometimes staring through the camera of what they're capturing to ensure that that integrity of what they're trying to achieve there it's like it's a it's a sort of it's a an obsessive level of attention to detail as a filmmaker that like you know it's certain you know it's not better or worse than a a marty scorsese or you know sitting back and being able to watch on a monitor or a tarantino who like you know I imagine Tarantino being on the side of a camera lens, like sometimes Michael Mann shoots people, you know, right, right against their cheek, you know, and like that's Tarantino just staring just out of frame, standing in, like, so people are performing at him as the primary audience of the of his movies when he's creating this. It's kind of this cool, cool little methods and 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 things that work for great filmmakers in, in all their eclectic ways.
1: Yeah, and I, that's definitely reflected in in his characters, right? I mean it's probably true that Hannah and Macaulay are almost two hemispheres of, of man himself in (laughs) many ways. And obviously the men he's observed through, through creating this story and over the years, the Chicago detective that he based um, Hannah on, I think. But, um, you know, I was, I was reading uh, an essay about, you know, well, actually no, I was listening to the commentary director's commentary on the, definitive edition or whatever it's called but man describing hannah's impulse to preserve life to the point of rage you know and i think that's exemplified in this scene because he is he is a driven person but there is there needs to be a why behind that you know there needs to be um reason for it and uh, you know he can't just be singularly minded about catching bad guys for the sake of it you know it has to be because he's interested in preserving life and i think his relationship with his stepdaughter you know stepdaughter is um is iconic of that you know it's it's interesting in modern hollywood movies there's so little fat that you know they've cleaved storytelling beyond (laughs) the bone you know They've shaved the marrow off, you know. And so (laughs) a film like this, unless it were made by man himself, couldn't exist today because the first studio note, it would be like, why do we need this subplot with the stepdaughter? Oh, yeah.
0: But even in 95, Mark, there's got to be that moment. I think, you know. Um, I said it in the last podcast, so people might hear it again, but I'll, I'll repeat it. And I, I'm sure if you follow me on Twitter, you might see this. One of my best friends is a really terrific author. Um, you know, she a, a, was, a, was a full-time journalist and is a freelance writer at the moment. Her name's Maria Lewis. And she, she tweeted at me and she goes, I could make a 10-movie marathon. I, yeah, yeah I, she's like, I could make yeah. a 10-movie marathon of movies you like without even consulting you at this point. She's like, it's gotta yeah. be from the nineties. It's gotta be forty-five minutes too long, and it's gotta be mostly it's like eighty-five percent dudes doing dude things, right? And so I sort of had a chuckle <laughs> to myself, because this this was prompted off of the back of me rewatching JFK, just because. Because it's I think yeah. it's a marvel. But I think, you know, to your point, it's I, I think sometimes it's about like the clarity of the director's vision to understand what is essential and what isn't and to actually be emphatic about why that's important. So, you know, you see you know, you still see it in movies like you know, you talked about Fincher before, you look at something like Zodiac. Like that's a movie that has the the patience to tell a really agonizing story. Like all the action, all the thrills, all the you know, the the tangible danger seemingly of that movie and you know it's a serial killer movie ultimately so it's like the the, the tangible physical danger of the people there and is in the first hour of the movie maybe the first 45 minutes and then the imprint and the haunting and the psychological trauma is what echoes for like the next two hours and it's like you, you there's certain kinds of filmmakers that can command Command and like demand your attention for that amount of time without having to have, allowing characters to be completely fleshed out, family lives, you know, arguments between partners, relationships deteriorating, and in heat, I think yeah, like uh, to your point, I think sometimes in some movies they they cleave the bone off, but in other movies they just direct it in a completely different. I think they try and preempt what the audience is going to like. Yeah. And it's almost like that whole Steve Jobs thing is like I'm not going to tell I'm not going to do what people want I'm going to do what what people don't even realize that they want and I think that that's like yeah. a fundamental difference between artists It's like man's like no I'm making this movie yeah. because this is what it is and if you yeah. want that movie it's not this like this is what yeah. it is and so and he's uh, making it for himself you yes. know, because
1: yeah. of what will interest him as an artist as a human being <laughs> yeah. and trusting that that instinct is going to translate to his audience, right? Yeah. You know, I was thinking about what this scene means and what Natalie Portman's subplot means in in particular. Yeah. Um and just like you know, there are a lot of there's a lot of collateral damage in this story. There's a lot of lives on the periphery of of these two tour de force human beings and their decisions in the determinist sense of the word who become um, Casualties, you know, yeah. and and she she may not be a casualty of um, Vincent Hannah's direct choices, but she's certainly like the domino. She's like the fourth domino that falls down as a result, right? So, yeah. he, you know, you listen to to man talk about this, and he he obviously mentions that she chose Hannah. She chose him to be the person that found her because it's like that's the cry for help that's coming, and that's ultimately she knows that he's going to care enough to to kind of try and make some effort to to mend it and and you you do get a sense in this scene that he does want to mend it even though he knows it's futile because he says I'm not going anywhere you know um it may not be mending the relationship but it may be mending the the damage in some way you know so what I what I love about this scene is that you know it, it it may be something that an executive would trim off the film in this day and age but you can't imagine the film without it you can't imagine the film without this this particular subplot you know because it is it is about the consequence of choices for each of these characters you know whether it's Edie or whether it's Laurent in this case um
0: but it's. Yeah, scene, you, you're so yeah. right, though. You're so. You're so. Right. I was just going to say, Mark, you're right. You're, uh, and that's my that's my impression of the film. Because as we're ramping up, you know, we've been talking about this movie now for, you know, two hours, two hours twenty five minutes, hmm. and, I think that, you know, uh, it's like a compounded weight. Like an emotional weight is 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 compiling up it 's like exponentially growing, and I think that, as opposed to digressions, I just feel like if we 're talking about like workout parlance, I feel like it 's someone just putting another plate on each side of that weight, like you are carrying this burden watching this movie and and if you 're you know deeply invested in it as people who love the movie are, and you continue to watch it. And it's like you're holding this bench press, and someone's just coming and adding another plate, and going, "How much? How much more can you take it?" And so when you, when you hit the crescendo, like the the the, you know, what what is ultimately literally a shadow dance between between uh, as you as you put it, like two two echoes of the same kind of character. This shadow dance in this transient location, you've got the weight of like nearly three hours of emotion like really authentic emotional fallout so like every every step every gesture every like every glancing around the corner you're not just glancing and dancing with these two guys you got the whole weight of the city this whole web of people on you and so yeah. i think i find that that's when when i'm looking at what emotionally reson- resonates with me it's like If you were unfulfilled, like if it wasn't pushing towards what is ultimately like the very minimalistic uh, approach in this movie um, to, you know, stripping it away just to that pure elemental thing at the end of the movie, and it it felt like it just came up and then disappeared, you'd totally go, cut it. But it's like if if man, and, and I'm sure man would have done with his editors and with his producers and with the people working with him and even his actors as he's crafting the performances like this is so important because it's that one final thing that you think might be a course correct in Vincent's life you know I'm gonna yeah. be in this marriage I'm gonna be a present dad I'm gonna be here but as soon as that pager beeps yeah. in an upcoming minute <laughs> see ya yeah. see you ya
1: know, you know that his pager beeping is, is like De Niro getting the call about where Wayne grows staying. It's like, a, that's the fatalist moment. And actually that was something I wanted to talk about was the spiritualism of this film, you know, because it, there is a spirituality that runs through I think all of man's work, you know um, which is admirable because he's able to take such urban subjects and imbue them with this, A strong sense of spirituality, and by spirituality, I mean the soul of these men and the the, the deterministic um, force that is pushing them. I don't like to call it fatalist because by the there are multiple times in this film where man illustrates that these men had a choice to choose something completely different. Yes, you know, like the tunnel of light being the perfect example with Edie. Um, and they choose to go the other direction, you know. So that's determinist. That's that's not fatalistic because, yes, they they were always going to make those choices because of who they were, but they were offered up the the chance to take the <laughs> yeah. other path. Yes, you know. And and maybe that's man recognizing that in himself. I think you know directors have shitty private lives at the best of times. You know, <laughs> failed marriages or unfathered children, but it's like the, the, I think the consequence of, of what happens to ordinary people when somebody so, um, singularly driven is involved in, in the process of their hunt, which is what Hannah is, um, is what he's interested in here. And that's, that to me is spiritual because it's about interconnectedness, you know,
0: Absolutely. There's a beautiful um, one of the best man writers of Michael Mann, and I'll I'll post it on Twitter. I'll actually um, see if I can share it in, in the description of this podcast. So if you're looking at your podcast app and you want to follow along, uh, one of the best writers of Mann that I've ever read is a fantastic writer. So, in an, I'll tell you his reputation before I get to the piece that I'm going to quote. His name's Jean Baptiste Thoreau. He's written a couple of times for um, Senses of Cinema in Australia. So if you've read English translations of his work, you would have seen it there. He's actually famously the film critic who worked in Charlie Hebdo, the French office that was attacked by um, you know fundamentalist terrorists. And so he's currently, uh, uh, I believe he's a documentarian as well as a film critic, just an unbelievable French film mind. And he's got this absolutely stellar account of Michael Mann's work. He's got a couple um, he talks about one's called Gravity of Flux, which is the a piece on Michael um, Michael Mann's Miami Vice film, um, which was like one of the early people that said it. You know, emphatically, it was a masterpiece in like two thousand and seven. Uh, and and the the other one is is this great one, this Aquarium Syndrome. And just on that, exactly what we were talking about. He talks about uh, he says in Mann's work, there's problems of membership. You know, it's loners versus couples and groups. And he says, and just this quote. So you were saying it, or just I had to bring it up. He says, in man the family, even as it is strongly desired, inevitably leads the individual to his ruin, and everything opposes its constitution, like the traps of plot or physical isolation, space, history. As with Frank's criminal past and thief, you know, he's like this is the drama of Frank the preeminent man character in safe, you know, a balance between a frantic individualism that he knows this is his only means of survival, not to care about anything else in his credo, and his desire, despite everything, to create a family, however artificial, with Jesse, Tuesday World. So that I just think that Thore gets, gets this so... like nails it so much on the head, is that that's the wrestle. And, you know, you talk about... You know, whether it's obsessively creative individuals or whether you talk about people who are in corporate entities or, you know, jobs and and they're just obsessive. And it's the law of going, what has got me to where I am today versus what do I actually desire? And that wrestle is so common. Um, in man so super relatable from any context that you come at but in his hyper stylization it's like it just amplifies those emotions and I think here you know this is the perfect moment as well for Venora because this whole time she's been saying you don't share anything with me, you don't share anything with me, you don't share anything with me and right now this is the moment that you know ultimately she's kind of punished for what she wants which is like she gets to see firsthand how good Vincent Hanna is at his job and it is at the result of Lauren's demise, essentially, or you know, potential demise. So it's just, it's just this one, one weird and conflicted relationship with family and and only belonging in man's stuff that ends up, you know, pushing these people to be alone.
1: Well, it, it's, it's interesting because um, this is the second time in the film he's comforting a grieving mother too. Yes, you know, after the death of the, the prostitute, the motel. And he's really holding her, you know, uh, and he's holding her in the same way. Um, but actually, it almost feels like he connects. I know Lauren isn't dead at this stage, you know, but he's connecting more with the woman who is a victim of of a homicide, whose daughter is a victim of a homicide, and he's connecting with her in a more profound way than he is with his own wife. Here, it's I agree because I, yeah, and I. Uh, it's felt on a visceral level. I can't intellectualize that too much, but it's interesting.
0: I, the way I I read it, Mark, and I was just watching the, the hug is with Justine, it's about protection because I think there's a confidence that he knows that they can save her. She's still got pressure. He knows what she needs to get done, and, and, and there's still this air of – he's still confident. He hasn't lost faith that Lauren's going to survive. He knows it's deeply traumatic and so for him it feels like it's almost like shielding like if you're going to shield your child or your partner from something horrific that's happening in front of you. So he's like pulling her away, pulling her into him, but in that moment there's a dance that happens in that absolutely you know stunning scene where he connects with the prostitute's mother where he's like firstly he's protecting and then there's like he sort of they sort of appraise one another. And they understand each other. And then she starts sort of hitting him because she can't come to terms with what's actually happened. And then he re embraces And it's that re-embrace and that slow down moment and that spinning around that like that connection is like it's like a screw tightening. It's like it's there's something so powerful about the ballet of that moment. Whereas here it feels just like protection. Stop looking. Don't look. Because I don't want you to have this memory of Lauren. Like it's like don't look at her. Don't look at her. Don't look at her. But he can take it. He can take it. And obviously she can too. Justine's a badass. But it's like yeah. Vincent's reflex is like, don't look, don't look, don't look. I can take it. I can take it. Don't look, don't look. Um, I did listen back
1: to the score uh, for the prostituting. And I know there's a little bit of Lisa Gerard's vocals in yes. the scene leading up to this one. Is there Lisa Gerard in the previous scene, I wonder? Mm. I, I, I need to listen for that. Well, I know she's. She's very subtly in the mix somewhere in let's this scene. Have a look but...
0: let's find it. let's find it as we're vamping as we're talking. Oops. It would not surprise me in the slightest in that particular echo. Uh, let's go here we are here one second. I'll find this scene, and we'll It is I think the sixty first minute mm. um when the prostitute's mother comes in. 61st 62nd I'm going to just play it here and uh, you guys can listen along and uh, as soon as the the connection happens I'm going to just play it while Mark and I are listening to it and here we go you guys can listen No Lisa Gerard vocals there, but nonetheless yeah. nonetheless yeah. it's that same I don't know, it's that same sort of soaring, haunting thing that's happening.
1: Yeah. yeah. Uh, this he he had a particular resonance for me because I saw it with my um my grandfather and my grandfather used to take me to he used to take me out of school and take me to the movies. <laughs> what a legend. Like,
0: <laughs> what a legend.
1: <laughs> One day when I was seven he came and, and uh Told my first grade teacher that I had a dental appointment, and took me to the car. And, and in the car was my uncle, who's only like six years older than me. And we went to, to Hoyts George Street Cinema, and we saw The Untouchables and Predator back to back. Oh my goodness! <laughs> was, oh was my seven
0: goodness! Seven years old, yeah.
1: He would take me to some very violent films, but uh, I I loved it. But anyway, we would we would see every every film that starred Schwarzenegger, Pacino, or De Niro. And um, not that you could really put Cass Schwarzenegger in the same category as those two guys,
0: but I remember, yeah, he was he an was was those... international superstar. in at that period, I mean, look, Predators That's... in my mind, the greatest in my mind the greatest action, macho action movie ever made. Maybe not the best ever. There's you know, there's you know, your Mad Max Fury Roads that are in the conversation, of course, and and you know those things. But yeah, I, I think that, and you know, Terminator Two, arguably the greatest sequel ever made. So you know, it's. Um, you know, he was making some pretty ripping films at that time. So there you go. Wow.
1: So so we went and, and and saw Heat together, and it was probably one of the last films. We, he's still alive, my grandfather, but it was probably one of the last films we saw at the cinema together because he just stopped wanting to go after a while. But um, I, it had such a profound effect on me, and and subsequently my whole outlook towards storytelling. But on a, on, a, on a kind of a tragic note, it had this kind of emotional re- resonance for the two of us because a few years before um, my grandfather had lost his own daughter, um, my, my mother's sister, to, to suicide. So and I remember my grandparents describing what it's like to be there in the hospital as someone you love is is – in a in a state of trauma, being revived, you know, the doctors are attempting to revive that person, and you know, it's you are just numbed, and you're just, you know, like you don't know what to feel. Uh-huh. Um, so I think the the, the film kind of has, and I was I was recovering from the loss of that person for only two years after when this film came out. So I think it hit me on a on a more personal note than any drama or action film or thriller would yes you know and i think the film is perforated with so many of those personal moments you know for everybody uh and for everybody it would be it would be something completely different you know um
0: you know even and different even things being, different
1: stages of your life too yeah exactly exactly um yeah for me now it's like being a father that's kind of not often with my children, you know, because I'm here in Los Angeles and they still reside actually in Bali most of the time, um, for, for circumstances out of my control and just having to be here to, to focus on work and and the profession and the ambition of wanting to be a filmmaker. So I, I relate very, very much to what Hannah is going through and you, you kind of feel out of control with, with what's going on in your life, like forgive me if the chicken was overcooked. Which is, <laughs> which I'm sure it's an ad lib line. That was that's one of my favorite lines in the film. The goddamn but,
0: um, chickens.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's like there the the personal connection and the spiritual connection in this film is inescapable for me, and I think what what I've tried. You know, man has a lot of influences and a lot of directors, filmmakers, for better or worse. Like yes. in my case, it was with my film *Terminus*, attempting to recreate the same level of sprawl with the characters I had in that film, but not having the resources to do it adequately and not having really the time, you know, to do it. To do this it was, adequately. This,
0: this was, to to be fair to you as an uh, as a, an emerging and independent filmmaker, this is man at the peak of his powers with the two biggest stars in Hollywood, Art Linson, one of the greatest producers who have ever lived, demanding $60 million in 1995 money, which is like today getting $100 million to make this on-location crime epic, which is just out of of anyone's understanding of what... Like, right now, it would just be unconscionable. He would not get the money for it. The only companies that I can imagine would be you know right now you know solvent enough to throw that at him is like netflix or yeah. a netflix or a, an amazon if a michael mann said i want to make this movie and had those stars attached or big stars attached they'd be like yeah here you go here's 100 million they just do it yeah. cuz that's what they seemingly do which is odd but you know nonetheless it would it would be a big move um, today, so you know, don't begrudge your probably five million dollar budget not being able to replicate what a hundred million dollars and the two biggest stars in the world at the time could do, my friend. Yeah, don't be too, but I guess that out. is the
1: power of man, like you know, like and many other filmmakers, you know, in that you, you so uh, so reverent of this film that you, you know, as a young filmmaker, very arrogantly <laughs> try to try yeah. to steal steal some of the most influential aspects of it, which is in this case the sprawl uh, on the canvas of, of, of telling a story about many, many characters experiencing the, the causal effects of, of the actions of the central protagonists, you know. So um,
0: I tried to do a little bit of that with Terminus, but probably failed. <laughs> it's it, You know, look, I think it's better um – Cam Williams came on the show recently, a a writer in Oz, culture writer. He coined a term, and it was in uh, episode 133. He coined a term called heat blocking, which is that it's so. I'm so glad that you talked about you know trying to be influenced by the sprawl, and now you're allowed to, after the movie's been out for years, a couple of years now, or a year and a bit, you can say I was influenced by the sprawl. But you're never allowed to say that in the lead up to the movie because if if you were to say that, Mark, then you're gonna you've immediately blocked your movie from being watched without people preferring that they were watching Heat while they're watching your movie. Like going, God, I wish I was watching Heat right now. God damn it! Um, and I experienced this live myself before Cam coined the phrase with Solo, you know, which is a movie that has Chewbacca in it and Han Solo and the Millennium Falcon. And I'm like, how can this movie lose? You know, it's really, it's got three of my favorite things that have ever existed in the universe. How can this movie lose? And then Ron Howard goes and says, you know, you know, I, I was inspired by heat. And you go, no, you weren't. You weren't. Stop, Ron Howard. I love you, but stop. You weren't inspired by heat. And he was you inspired were,
1: by paycheck,
0: right? You weren't, <laughs> no, you, you, this, this movie is not influenced by heat. It's not Star Wars' heat. Just stop. Okay. Yeah. Everyone just yeah. stop. You are not doing this movie justice. But also, you know, to be fair to you and to be fair to those who are influenced by him, um, you know, and there's plenty of filmmakers. You know, we talked about Anthony Morris earlier. Anthony hugely influenced by him, um, um, you know, and, 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 and aspirationally and, um, uh, you know, that's, it, it, it is what it is. What I was going to say, though, is, um, you know, man has essayed these topics and subjects for such a long time. So, you know, you can go back to Jer- you can go back to Jericho, you can go back to um, you know, Jericho Mai, you can go to Thief, you can then go to the great shows like Crime Story and have a look at the evolution and the you know the the crystallization of these ideas as they evolve in his mind, and as he's pursuing them and and continuing to shave things, move things, alter things, tweak, etc. So I I think you know I think we can't we can't begrudge the fact that you know people are aspirationally going to try and make films like him. Um, you know Nick Remy Matthews, who's the great cinematographer for Hotel Mumbai, and has worked with Anthony Mars, like a huge huge heat fan as well, hugely influenced by Dante Spinotti, people like that. It's like It's been something that's been essayed over many years, Manhunters and those movies, like he's he's defining ideas and then Heat comes to a crescendo, you know, this perfect synthesis of, you know, everything he's ever tried to achieve in narrative cinema in Sprawl and it comes at this time. And even he'd he'd gotten to the point where he could sort of draft it with LA Takedown and you come with Heat and it's like, here's the piece de resistance, like this is... You know, this is what I've been able to craft for many, many, many years, and after, after many iterations of it on many different forms and attempted forms, um, you get to this point. It's, you know, it's it's pretty intimidating to get to get off this way.
1: Yeah, and I wonder actually if he, um, you know, that we've all seen the the LA takedown sequence of the coffee shop scene. I want, yes, that you have a completely different caliber of actor. But I wonder how much of of the, the 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 angle on heat had synthesized in that time in his mind yes where, where he basically funneled the story through through his experience and through his uh life experience you know as a as a human how much that reinformed his approach to it you know when he got to a chance to remake it essentially
0: yeah it's it's really you know it's so hard to even think about you know that sort of stuff but there's like and and again it you know even even um even the big filmmakers who i think have successfully aped michael mann the best aka chris nolan um have been have have been you know doing versions of his work and I always said, always theorized that insomnia was the Heat sequel that Chris Nolan, you know, n- never had the permission to make, but he just yeah. made it anyway. Um, you know, uh, you know, with Vincent Hanna turning bad um, because that's more like a Chris Nolan protagonist. He's much more uh, cynical about the world. Um, and then he made The Dark Knight, which is, you know, it's just Heat with Batman and the Joker and Two Face. You know, it's a, it's, yeah. a, it's like, you know, that's the, you know, one of the one of the great. Entries into the superhero genre, a very heat feeling. Um, and, uh, you know, that's the it, – it takes – it took him years of crafting to kind of reach out and do that and, they, you know, they kind of smash together and you're like, oh, that's, that's what it is. It's just heat. There you go. Um, look – One of the other things I noticed from
1: this scene, you know, I, I know, like, there's a lot of iconic symbolism in, in, in the more kind of memorable scenes of heat – um, but just, just an observation on how a man does it on a on a kind of subtle level and in, in, in a in a more ordinary scene, you know, when he's framing um, you know, I, I first I guess there's his obsession with process and the whole idea of the procedural so the hospital scene feels very immersive in 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 that way that he does it so well, capturing, you know, casting real hospital staff. Yes. The nurse herself was a trauma a trauma surgeon. Um but then we get to this scene between um, Pacino and Venora, uh, where they're kind of like the the moment we see them, they're they're facing completely different directions. And then he frames this profile two shot where they're literally facing the opposite direction, but they're so close to each other. They're probably, closer than they've ever been in the in the story thus far, but yet they are at diametrically opposed <laughs> opposites and points of their life. And just his ability to kind of surmise thoughts like that and and symbols about his characters is, is just so powerful.
0: Yeah, I think they're the things that you go back and go, um, I think it's the bravery to have the idea that you want them in that moment to be really intimate, as well as diametrically opposed, and then at the same time be willing to just glance past it like it's nothing. Like that yeah. takes such a level of confidence that I think is like, you know, I'm not reinforcing the point. I'm just doing this, and I'm going to do it. And then it's like, you know, us fanatics who come back and review it over and over again. And go, God, that is just a stunningly subtle reinforcement of a message which ultimately is going to be paid off in the next sequence of the scene. But he just doesn't he like i think that that's that's where you show like a real filmmaker's craft is like they'll just let little things like that be subtle just for a brief moment and they will just glance past it they made a stack of effort to make it work like that and they just go Shh, just glance past it i'm going to just go straight past it it's like yeah. um you know that's the i think that's a real classy you know, that's that's the stuff where you're like, I can't believe, you know, if you go into all that trouble to do it and you've had the directions to the actors and stuff and they've probably run that shot a few times to make sure that they got what they needed, it's like, I just can't believe that. Mm. I can't believe that it's just like that. They got it in one second.
1: Yeah. I mean, hospitals are really shit places to shoot in. <laughs> I was just going <laughs> to say,
0: it's the second you're hospital. Never
1: gonna, you're never going to own the space completely. I mean, I'm, even on a, probably a, a sixty million dollar film at the time, um, but he he just he does own it so well, you know, in in his observational way. And casting day players is is the other thing that can derail any film, you know. It's like and he does it so well, especially in this film. It's like you just believe everybody, you know, like you, yeah, like you, ra- the rape- no, no one draws attention to themselves, which is that's the beauty of day player casting, you know. Yes.
0: Well, look... Speaking of day players, I'm really excited and happy that Mark, you've come and been a day player on this <laughs> epic exercise, one heat minute. And thank you to all of the folks who've been a part of it, um, mate. Thank you so much for reaching out, and best of luck in your LA professional pursuits. Um, and uh, thinking about the iridescent algae with your children in Bali. I know I just made that up. It should be Fiji, but th- just you know, thinking of them, happy thoughts um, and good stuff. And I love the story about your granddad. So thank you so much for for telling and sharing. Uh, your granddad was doing good work that's a good example for me to know um, if cinemas still exist when my kids who are like two and nine months old now if, if cinemas still exists when they're older in school I will happily be the dad that pulls them out um, for, for a fake dental appointment to go to see a film that I think that they should see so I think he was doing the Lord's work there clearly he was because you're, you're making films so thank you so much for being a part of the show mate I really appreciate it
1: Thank you, Blake.
0: It's been a real honor. Uh, awesome. Guys, thank you so much for listening to One Heat Minute. 145 minutes down. And about 21 to go until we hit credits. And we have a stacked lineup of incredible people, just like Mark, um, that are going to bring this thing home. Thank you to Mr. Garth Franklin for our web design, as always. Thank you to Mr. Paul Davies for our awesome theme. And. We'll catch you on another episode of One Heat Minute just around the corner. And remember, I am calm. This is me calm, just like Pacino's calm in this scene.